You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities. Uh, just got done wrapping up a lunch break. And uh, for us, it's been a little longer for you, but uh, we they, hope you're still with us. They could have been taking lunch for a week. I mean, <laughs> my kind of people. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I'd go for a week-long lunch. <laughs> Although those never turn out good in the Bible, if we remember uh, Samson's marriage feast that lasted a week. So anyway. Fair enough, yeah. So. <laughs> we Moving on, if we're tired of telling ourselves jokes, um, we are beginning uh, chapter seven. It's probably going to be covered in this episode. We'll move into chapter eight because mm. it is a fairly short uh, chapter. You know, I, I I hadn't really studied Samuel a whole lot because it does seem to be like a straightforward book. Mm-hmm. And there are some sections in it that are just, you know, if you can read what's on the page, you got it. Right. And then there's other things that it's like, wait a minute, something else is going on beneath the surface. And uh, there, there are some things, even in this short old chapter, that seems pretty straightforward that I think we need to be paying attention to. Right. So um, the big news with this is Samuel shows up. We sure. haven't heard from him since chapter three. Yeah, he's been out for a while. Yeah, he, he's been behind the scenes. So this is sometime... In that 20-year period, while the Ark is not in public use, mm-hmm. when, the, when the people can't uh, get to it. And Samuel, you know, he, he's really grown up. He, he's developed some confidence. Uh, he, he's got some experience with his calling. And he's really established his credibility as a prophet. But now we're going to move to a place where there's going to be this public affirmation of who he is. Mm-hmm. And so often when God calls someone, we, we find this over and over again, where there's this private call, and then there's this public confirmation. And I think that's an interesting template that it it kind of, there's this two-step way of getting there. Right. It's not just, oh, I felt this at home and everything, you know, God's called me to do this great thing, and now I'm equipped. Sure. The people have to actually accept the leader that God gives them. And usually God does this by providing some kind of sign. And we're going to talk about what Samuel's sign is. Okay. So I I should also point out what I thought was interesting is it seems that almost every time there's a major crisis in the book of Samuel, the prophet does go missing. It's like the people forget that they have one. Hmm. So this happens over and over again. So it's fitting that Samuel, the guy the book's named after, kind of sets the stage for that. Right. So the people have been lamenting after the absence of the ark. Uh, that was the end of chapter six. And as a nation, they're, they're ready to hear from God, and they're ready to hear from God in the way he wants to talk to them, not just the way that they assume th- that is proper. There, mm. There's no, uh, there's nothing left for them to try to manipulate. I mean, there can't even be a pretense of manipulation at this point, because the only thing they had that they felt they could use has now been taken from their hands. and so. Samuel, um, he, he's going to call the nation to repentance. And this is a reminder of personal responsibility, uh, the faith that's 
enacted. It's not an insurance policy. And this is also not just a cry for help, like we've heard from the previous stories in Judges, where we're in trouble, we need God now. Mm. He's actually saying, you need to repent. You yeah. need to fix the relationship. So this, that's a move. That's a major shift on the part of the nation, because most of the time they didn't repent. They just, they just knew that they needed help. Right. So um, verse three and four, it opens with, and Samuel said to all the house of Israel, so he's speaking to the whole nation. He's mm-hmm. not just speaking to an individual tribe or a section of the nation. He's the only prophet, um, I'm sorry, the only judge that does this. Because before this, the judges just kind of had their own little territory that they delivered from whatever threat was posed. Right, right. So he says, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Asheroth from among you. And to, and sorry, I'm trying to read my own handwriting. Um, I mean, you have the text right in front I of you. Do. Maybe you should go with that. I could, but then that's small. The reason <laughs> that's the problem. I'm realizing how old I'm getting. Gonna have to get you have to one of the big print Bibles. Yes, one of the huge print Bible. <laughs> okay, so then put away the gods and the Astaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only, and He will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. So the people put away the Baals and the Asheroth, and they serve the Lord only. So we've got some interesting words here. So. Samuel begins by saying, you know, put away your foreign gods and your Asheroth. He doesn't say Baal. The, the narrator is the one who says Baal at the end of the, that section. Yeah. Now, Bergen suggests two possible reasons for this. One, it's a reminder that all foreign gods, male and female, had to be eradicated. That means that female gods were not exempt because, or goddesses were not exempt because it was not uncommon in this day and age for there to be a the male god that was the main god but then the women kind of had their own separate little female goddesses that dealt with women's issues that were seen as separate from the main god okay and that's you know god saying no i'm sufficient for both sexes you don't need a separate god for men and women you can worship together okay the second suggestion that he offers, it's a call to rid themselves of other gods, but also to stop trying to give God a wife. He doesn't need to be married off. And some of the textual support for the idea is the idea that Baal and Asarte are always together. Sure. El, Baal, um, El and Asherah, they're always together. Mm-hmm. In uh, 2 Kings 21.7, Manasseh puts an Asherah pole in the temple, God's temple. Right. Gideon had to cut down an Asherah pole. So we know that Asherah is present within Israelite worship before and after the time of Samuel. So this is a problem. Right. Now, archaeological support for the idea that Asherah was part of Israel's worship, we have multiple images of Asherah as household goddesses. Mm -hmm. So we, we find those in the houses where we should be finding no images of any gods. We have a Hebrew prayer. To Asherah, so it's written in Hebrew, and it contains a direct quote from Aaliyah when she gave birth to Asher. Uh huh. So this is another place where archaeology seems to suggest, hey, God had a wife. We have storage jars with the one of them has the inscription, "May you be blessed by Yahweh and His Asherah." So this is another thing that's been found. Uh, there's several different pieces in the Northeast Sinai uh, region. And there's just similar inscriptions that, mm. that incorporate the two. 
And you know, we've talked about this before, but I want to point this out because it, I'm running across it a lot more in a lot of the, the Bible debate groups. Mm-hmm. And Christians get so offended that anyone would suggest that Israel has a God or may have had a goddess at some point that they worshiped. But we've got to hang on to God never condones this practice. Right. The Bible never approves it. Matter of fact, it explicitly condemns it. And the one thing the Bible is always telling us is how much people screw things up. Right. So So why would this be any different? (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, stop getting up in arms about that. Acknowledge that it could have happened. If anybody's going to make a mistake when it comes to worshiping God, it's ancient Israel. That's the reason why they're always in trouble, and that's why we have a book that has so many interesting stories in it. Well, yeah, and and, and it wasn't that long ago, and I think we've mentioned it before. There was an article we saw that the archaeological evidence that Israel uh, worshipped other <laughs> gods other than Yahweh, and we're like, yeah, it's he, it's in the record. Like, yeah, <laughs> we know this. Yeah, what what's the problem here? But the the writer of Samuel. He he is acknowledge he may be acknowledging, according to Bergen, that Israel was attempting to to marry God off, and God wants him to stop. And mm-hmm. he he's saying, "Quit being disobedient." So, if you want me to deliver you, do what I told you to do. And again, that's going to be the message. So often, if you want help, do what I told you to do. Yeah. It's that simple. So, you know that feeling. <laughs> It's amazing how much you begin to understand God's words to his people when you become a parent. Yeah, when you, when you become a parent, <laughs> a lot of the things God says makes a lot more sense. It's, it's amazing. like, I, I get what he's going through now. So at least, you know, on a little small level, I don't want to overemphasize that. Right. But right. it's a window. It's a yeah, window. I'm, I'm with you there. So verse five, then Samuel said, gather all of Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. Uh, this is one of the primary duties of the prophet, and this is going to be very big later on. But one of the primary duties of the prophet is to pray for the people. And mm-hmm. if the prophet is not praying for the for the people, they're not doing their job. It's not just enough to deliver a message. You've got to pray. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, we see that with the first prophet that was ever commissioned. That's Genesis 20, verse 7. Abimelech, when he took uh, Sarah... God says, go talk to Abraham. He's a prophet. He will pray for you. So God himself says, this is the duty of a prophet. And so Samuel is fulfilling that. Mm-hmm. And Mizpah, this is the place where Israel gathered before uh, they attacked Benjamin after the Levi- Levite and the concubine. Mm-hmm. And so it's very telling that this is the place that Samuel would say, we need to gather and repent of our sin as a nation. That we're going to go back to this place where really everything started to go downhill for us as a nation. The the sins in Gibeah, that was, you know, localized. Yeah. But then when Mizpah came into the picture, now it becomes a national sin. And he says, as a nation, if we're going to return, we're going to return to this place. We're going to acknowledge what we're going to do, what we did wrong. And we're going to try to get it right this time. And so it's very fitting that this is the place that Samuel has decided should be the the moment for them. So verse six, so they gathered at Mizpah and they drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel directed the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now this water ritual, we don't have it anywhere else in the Bible. I didn't recognize it. I was wondering about that. It's, 
It's odd. It's very strange. It, it really is. Now, later on, there's going to be a water ritual that's similar that uh, Jews will practice, and they still practice it today at Sukkot. Okay. But that doesn't come into play till, I mean, this is, you know, way after Samuel's time. We're looking Second Temple, maybe even beyond when it started to be practiced. So we don't know really when that became incorporated. And we think mm-hmm. maybe this might be where they decided, you know, where they drew it from, that this like is a, the, the precursor. Yeah. Um, some commentators have suggested this has something to do with rainfall and water ritual that Hey, look, we're pouring water on the ground. You need to pour water on the ground, God. See what you got to do? Probably not that. Uh, We do have records of that with other religions, but that's probably not what the Israelites are doing here. I, 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 the the only thing I can think of is is some kind of purification, uh, ritual purification, like possibly baptizing the land. Baptizing the land. um, I didn't think about uh, that. Or, or, Possibly, uh, if there's an altar set up, uh, cleaning off the altar that's been in disuse or something of that nature. That's the, and, and this is just pure mm-hmm. speculation because I have no, no clue. Oh, well, and, and no, nobody really does because we don't have any command in the Torah to do something like this. Right. And we don't have it repeated anyplace else. Uh, there is, within the verse itself, it's, it seems to be connected to fasting. So it might be, hey, we're fasting, but we're taking it beyond fasting, and we're not just going to deny ourselves food. We're going to deny ourselves water, too. So that that's a possibility, and I, I think that's the most likely possibility, but it doesn't, even that doesn't feel right. It doesn't right. sit well. Um, but I don't have any better op- you know, explanations to offer anyone. <laughs> well, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to even make sense that if you were going to uh, deny yourself water as well as food, you would even draw the water again. Well, and you got to remember where Mizpah is. It's a high place. You aren't going to find water. You would have had to have lugged it up there in order to to have it present. Mm-hmm. And it's it it's a weird thing. And, and I don't expect us to figure it out. Well, no, I mean nobody's figured it out. Especially sitting here without <laughs> any resources. Yeah, maybe except we except your notes. Yeah, and and the things I had at home weren't any better, so, uh, so who knows? If you got any information on that, shoot it let our us way. Know. Yeah, yeah, we get enough people. Hey, saying I've got I've got solutions for this on this episode and solutions for that on that episode. We, we may have to actually do a bonus episode of questions we've asked. <laughs> you know, yeah. so but the the main thing here is we're told Samuel is a judge. This is the first time that he is acknowledged as a judge. Mm -hmm. And this is the process. He's not being confirmed as a prophet, but he is being confirmed as the judge and the rightful leader of the people. Remember, judge, I mean, sorry, prophets don't lead the nation. Right. They, they, they help leadership. They um, inform leadership and they pray for leadership. They correct leadership, Mm -hmm. but they are not leadership. And so we've got to be careful with that distinction there. Because, you know, I think so often in t- today's churches, there's this tendency that, oh, well, if you're a prophet or you have that, been given that title, given it to yourself, whatever, that, oh, well, then you need to be the leader of a church. Mm-hmm. That's not what happened in the Bible. You, you, if you're a prophet, you probably need to step back and let somebody who's yeah, been you're, called you're to leadership. outside the, the camp, as it were. Yeah, yeah. So just something to consider. And... So verse seven, 
Now the Philistines heard of the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah. The lords of the Philistines went up against Israel, and the people of Israel heard of it, and they were afraid of the Philistines. So like I said, Mizpah, it, it's high ground. Mm-hmm. And you know, we, we know that it's high ground because it is a sacred place, and sacred places were on high ground. Mm-hmm. But then a really good place to launch a military attack is the high ground. And so the, the Philistines probably didn't know that this was a religious ceremony that was going on. And they probably thought when they heard that, hey, Israel's gathered at Mizpah, they're going to launch some kind of attack because that's what happened last time. Now they attack themselves, mm-hmm. but this was the point of attack for, for Benjamin. And so they say, hey, you know, we, we need to, to do something before they get themselves too organized. And... And in some ways, the, the Philistines are, once again, it's, it's kind of funny to me how often they're right. Mm-hmm. And it's even more right than the nation of Israel on certain things. But God had promised that with repentance, the gift of deliverance would be given. Mm-hmm. And so they're correct that this religious experience or event is going to lead to warfare. Right. But the other thing, too, is... They're correct because wars aren't fought by people, they're fought by gods, and you know, people are just there. They're, they're a part of the arsenal, but they're not the main participants. So, and I know I keep going back to that, but when you understand that's the mindset, yeah. it makes sense. So, the people are still lacking in faith. Uh, their, their reaction of, is, of the Israelites is to fear. But in some ways, this is kind of encouraging because... They are finally realizing they can't beat the Philistines. They have to rely on God to, to defeat the Philistines. Mm-hmm. And if they try to do it in their own power, they're in trouble. And so that's, that's kind of actually a really good thing to see from them, because before we had so much hubris that, oh, yeah, we can do whatever we want to do. Mm-hmm. So Well, and yeah, and again, you said there, there's no ark, so it is going to have to actually be faith in God and not the good luck charm. Precisely. Yeah. And that's the other thing, because they don't have the ark and they can't manipulate God. They can't pretend to manipulate God. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the ark had been the source of their security for so long. So verse eight, and the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord, our God, for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Right answer. Finally, coming from the right people. <laughs> We need you, Samuel, the guy who hears from God, to pray for us. Now, the last time this has happened, this is how long it's been since the people had asked their spiritual leadership to pray for them. Mm-hmm. Numbers 21.7. This is way, way, way back in the wilderness. This is when God sent the snakes. Yeah. And the people cried out to Moses, pray for us. We need deliverance. So, Samuel does what Samuel always does. He, he, he does it big. He, he offers a suckling lamb. He cries out to the Lord. The Lord answers him. And while he's doing this, the Philistines approach. They're getting ready to attack. And the Lord thunders with a mighty sound. And this throws the Philistines into confusion. And the, and the Bible says they are defeated before Israel. Now, Israel's still standing on the top of a mountain at Mizpah at this point. Mm-hmm. But they're defeated before Israel. But when I say it's typical Samuel, what I'm saying is he makes a whole burnt offering. He doesn't do a peace offering. He doesn't do anything Mm -hmm. that the people consume. It's all given to God. 
And Samuel is a man of extremes. He, everything is over the top with him. Mm-hmm. And so he's going to make sure that, that God gets the whole thing. And we're also reminded he is that priest because only a priest can offer a whole burnt offering. Mm-hmm. And specifically, a son of Aaron. Okay. So praying out to the Lord, typical prophetic language. It, it, it's more than praying. This isn't just, oh, Lord, we come to you and we need your help. No, this is like flinging yourself and your problems in God's face. Yeah. This it's, is, it's crying out. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's help! <laughs> emptying yourself completely uh, and with no reservation. It, it, it's, it's total surrender to God's will uh, and asking for the, you know, a positive outcome. Mm-hmm but recognizing that you are at God's mercy. So the Lord thunders, uh, you know, th- this kind of uh, language, it- it's very common in the ancient Near East, and we see it in the Bible, that war language is storm language, and storm language is war language, mm-hmm. and the two, mm-hmm. two work together. So the Philistines are thrown into confusion. First time, the, the, the first time that God throws the Philistines into confusion, back in Exodus 14.24, this is the crossing of the Red Sea, when Moses delivers the nation of Israel from Egypt. And the effect, in effect, this is Samuel's Red Sea moment. This yeah. is, you, you mean when he, because the Red Sea, that was the Egyptians. Yeah, did I say? You said Philistines. Sorry. Well, the Philistines are the Egyptians in this story. So, okay, gotcha. yeah. So well, they're, they're they're there to parallel. Yeah. Uh, the the other thing I think is interesting is we do continue this theme of God is fighting the battle. Yes. Because it says they were defeated before Israel. Yeah. Like Israel before, didn't defeat them. Yeah. Yeah. The, Israel's not even you know they're not even part of the equation. And at at the time that God defeats them, and yeah, it's just like the Red Sea moment when God you know just overwhelms mm-hmm. Pharaoh's armies. Israel had nothing to do with that. Well, well and, and also, I mean, and this kind of uh, shows too, and when, when is God fighting the battle? When they've purified themselves, when they've drawn near to him. In when repentance. They, yeah, in repentance. And that's a very powerful point uh, of the story. Well, and how often do we go, okay, I'm going to ask God to help me, but I'm not going to change anything. Mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. I'm just going to, or I'll make a promise to change something, but we both know that once God does what I ask him, I'm just going to continue on my merry little way. Well, and, and you know, I was thinking about it too is, you know, and I keep, I keep coming back to this idea that Samson was, he, he upset the Philistines enough to mm-hmm. let everyone know like, oh yeah, these people aren't our aren't actually our friends right and if you look at when god's doing the fighting here it's they're they're at war Mm -hmm. and i think sometimes we don't get delivered from the stuff that we want to get delivered from because we're not actually at war with the thing yeah we're still friends with the thing or person or uh not i'm not saying we should need to go start Mm -hmm. a war i'm talking i'm talking (laughs) metaphorically and you know battle against the 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 sin and the powers that be, mm-hmm. um, but I think too often we want to remain remain friendly and we don't want to upset the balance and and it's and sometimes we need God to act like Samson and go no that thing is not your friend yeah yeah and which is kind of funny because it's Samson who was such a friend of the Philistines until they made him mad and mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and you know and I think sometimes 
you know, God does let us continue in those metaphorical friendships with things that are bad for us, just so we can see how badly they're going to treat us. Yeah. You know, and that there might be something even to that. But yeah, at this point, Samson, because we forget that this is the part of the story that interlocks with judges so that this is the continuation. It was happened sometime after Samson had, had created that rift. Mm-hmm. And now he hadn't done a very thorough job because we're going to see that in the story of Saul and Jonathan, mm-hmm. but he, he had started to drive the wedge and I, you've actually got my brain turning and I've got to focus on this, but with Jonathan and Samson, I think we're, we're definitely going to see some parallels, but to see that Jonathan's actually the one who steps up and he just, not only does he, step into that rift, he like completely rips it off. He yeah, is like, yeah, he makes it final. So yeah, that's, we'll get to that. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get to that later. That That's a good story. Yeah. It's a great story. But, um, but yeah, we're, we're seeing the same themes here in Samuel that we saw in the Exodus and, you know, the people are afraid of their oppressors. We've got weather related phenomenon. We've got people crying out and God fighting on behalf of the people. And the other thing that I think is interesting is back in chapter four, verse five, when the ark came into the camp and the people, they shouted and the earth resounded. And, you know, the, the people shaking the earth results in death and destruction. When God shakes the earth, there's victory in life. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a pretty interesting kind of reversal there. So um, it looks like I'm actually missing a page. Ah. Good. Now that makes more sense. You've got to get your notes sorted out. You're I did. talking about them way too much on the air. <laughs> I actually uh, <laughs> I actually went through and sorted them before, and I must miss this one. But anyway, so verse 11. Uh, all that was left for Israel to do after the Philistines are defeated before them is to chase after the Philistines. And they chase them as far as Beth Carr. Uh, we don't know how far that is, but evidently it's a pretty good, good, pretty good distance. Far enough to make note of. Yeah. And it reminds us, you know, Samson, whenever they, they blew the shofar and they broke the, the pots with the torches and, you know, God threw the Philistines into confusion there. And they, sorry, the Midianites was, with Gideon, um, but with Gideon and they just chase after him and, they, and Gideon continues to chase after him for like three days after that. Mm-hmm. So there's some connection back to that story. But um, verses 12 and 14, we, we have this dis- uh, description of Samuel, he, he's setting up a, a, a monument at Mizpah, and it's a stone that he calls Ebenezer, and it says, till, till now the Lord has helped us. So um, God will keep the Philistines at bay as long as Samuel's alive. There's, there's no major conflict with the Philistines again until after Saul becomes king, and then Saul's going to fight them throughout his reign, mm-hmm. and then David, of course, is going to be the final king who, who finally takes care of the problem altogether. And two of the five Philistine cities, God actually returns back to Israel. Mm-hmm. He gives them Ekron and Gath. Now, well, say one thing I want to point out here real quick. Just, mm-hmm. uh, and this is just a side note, because I always think of this when I hear the word Ebenezer <laughs> is, uh, come thou fount of every blessing. Mm-hmm. You know, the second verse is... Of course, I guess it depends on which version, but I think it's the second verse in most of them. So here I raise my Ebenezer. We know it's not the third. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, sorry, a little church humor. Yeah, the first, second, and fourth verse of every song. <laughs> yep. Um, 
but the uh that you know that's that's what that's referring to so if you've seen that and that's that's saying that here, here i you know here's the place i'm going to remember that god fights my battles mm-hmm. so that's and we're which gonna, is really cool so yeah and we're going to talk about what ebenezer means because it's, it's a really great word actually so um but yeah, with well, the, sorry, I didn't mean to. No, get, that's okay. I thought we were already. I thought we were moving past. Yeah, so I, I was kind of just summarizing the, these verses, and then I was going to go back and pull oh. a few things out. So okay, but yeah, but and Let's then go. then we've got the final part in there is that you know there's peace with the Amorites, and the Amorites are important because you know that was the ones that when God told Abraham, "I'm going to give you this land," but there's some things that have got to happen first because the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. Mm-hmm. So um, the stone. It, when he sets it up as a monument, we don't know if he's setting it up as a monument to a a geographic location or if he's setting it up as kind of a a date marker, because it says until this place or until now. Either one works, and there's some confusion on what it should be. So, it, so it's possible it could be like if we stay in our land. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it's it's the the invisible fence, pretty much. Yeah, it's like this is this is the boundary now. What like I said, and the problem is, is the boundary of of geography or boundary of time. Mm-hmm. So there's some debate because both interpretations work. Uh, as we go through the book, we're going to see that. But at the same time, so often in the Bible, when you have those, which one is it? Mm-hmm. It's both. You know, it doesn't. Enough, yeah. It doesn't always have to be a single explanation because God's you know He's infinitely creative. And he's not right. bound to single explanations. So this stone is Aben Ebenezer. Uh, so, or Aben Haetzer is actually how you would say it in Hebrew. Okay. So the stone of help. And the, the Israelites had camped at Ebenezer and verse, uh, sorry, chapter four, verse one, they camped at Ebenezer. Now, the writer in Samuel is using that word to say, hey, they've camped here at Ebenezer before it's named Ebenezer, because mm. the readers wouldn't know what the old name was. They would only know the name that Samuel gives it here in this verse. Right. So it, it's not weird that the writer has Ebenezer in both places, even though it doesn't get named till now. Right. So the, uh, the name change is showing us that the situation is changing. Whenever you change the name of a person or location, you're changing the destiny, changing the fate, you're changing the meaning. Mm-hmm. So I think we've talked about that a whole lot. So Etzer, the stone of help or stone of the help, uh, literally means a help. Etzer is not helper. It's not help meet. It's not help mate. It's not assistant. And we first encounter this word in Genesis 2.18. Whenever God tells Adam, I will make him a suitable helper. Mm-hmm. Uh, literally, I will make him a helper according to what's in front of him, and which has some interesting connotations when you think about male and female relationships. So okay. um, a lot of times, especially in complementarian circles, they want to say, oh, this means that you are just a helper. Now, what we need to remember is Etzer occurs 21 times in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Only once is it used of women. So we have all these other times. I'm not going to read through all of them, but I want to give you an example of how it is used. So here, the stone of the help, the stone where God has helped us. Right. Exodus 18.4, the God of my father was my help. 
Okay. Deuteronomy 33, 7, God is going to help Judah with um, its adversaries. Deuteronomy 33, 29, God is the shield of help. And many times in the Psalms, God calls himself, or the writer of the Psalms calls God an etzer. So mm. if we want to say that an etzer is less, we have a problem. Sure. Because in all of these verses, God is doing the heavy lift- lifting for someone else, for the men, really. I mean, if you want to be very <laughs> pointed about it, he, these are all referring to things he's doing specifically for men. Right. So right. Um, to, to claim that that word could actually somehow minimize the role of women, not a, you know, you it's don't. A pretty weak argument. It's pretty, yeah, pretty much. Uh, the polite way to say it, right? Weak would be probably the, the, the strongest way to say it in my vocabulary, but um, invalid would might be actually a little bit more that I would go. But anyway, so peace with the Amorites. Um, you know, when we first talked about the Amorites, it's Abraham's story. And this exile where in Egypt is because the Amorites, well, in Egypt at the time, you know, after Abraham and, and Joseph and all of them, that, that exile into to Egypt was to allow the sin of the Amorites to be complete. And it really refers to every inhabitant in Canaan together. It, it's not a single people group. Okay. So it's kind of like, you know, uh, Americans. And then you know, we've mm-hmm. got all the different kinds of people in America, which is great. But here in this situation, it's not so great. So I don't know if that was a great example, you know. <laughs> It is. I think it fills its purpose for now. So, um, but but the picture that we're getting of Samuel is that he is really providing complete peace and as much unification as Israel has seen at this point in time. Before this, the judges weren't able to rally the whole nation and they weren't able to extend peace to the whole nation. And we'd even talked about how some of the judges may have been doing their thing at the same time in different locations in the book of Judges. Right. But now we have one judge and the entire nation is starting to to come together under his leadership. And this is one of the reasons why when we move forward and we start to see Israel asking for a king, why? Samuel's proving that being a judge can be effective if the judge is actually doing what God has called him to do and he's Mm -hmm. being who he's supposed to be. They don't need a king. And we realize that, you know, they're saying, hey, we need a, ju- we need a king to fight the Philistines. Why? The, the judge has kept the Philistines at bay throughout his entire time as a judge. Mm-hmm. So uh, you really begin to see that the, the request for a king is it, it, fairly absurd. Yes. <laughs> it, because we really, they say, we need a king to go out and fight our battles for us. But wait a minute. Mm-hmm. Did you just see what just happened? <laughs> yeah, well, and there's going to be so many moments like that. And, and that's the thing. People are not paying attention. The, the people in Israel are not paying attention literally to what's going on right in front of them. And you know, that, that's a problem. So verses 15 and 17 uh, says, God judged all, 15 through 17, Samuel judged all the days of his life and went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. He judged Israel in all these places, and then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there he also judged Israel, and he, and he built there an altar to the Lord. So this is a summary of Samuel's at times a judge, how he, how he handles his responsibility. He, he, he travels these four cities. He makes this yearly circuit. He's going to spend time in each one. 
And in effect, if you follow the, um, the pattern that was laid out in Judges, this is kind of like the conclusion of his story. Mm-hmm. And now Samuel's still going to be a part of what's going on, but he's not the focus of the book anymore. He's going to play a big part in anointing the kings and helping them get set up and, and going to deliver correction, particularly to Saul. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But that's not his story. We're right. not reading his story. We're reading Saul's story or we're reading David's story. And we are going to have one more time where we're going to go back and we're going to hear you know, a major speech from Samuel. But it's not, like I said, it's all going to be as it affects other players. Sure. So the, um, the journey, the, the rabbis actually got to looking at this journey and they realized this is a, this is a massive undertaking to walk all of these four places and to, you know, hot, dusty roads. Mm-hmm. If there is a road. You have to transport your own water. Yeah. Hope that you can make it to another watering hole before the night. Somebody's mm-hmm. going to take you in. I, you know, all the things that came along with traveling, and we know that traveling is not safe at this point in time. We've already seen that in mm-hmm. Judges. Mm-hmm. But Samuel still does it. And they say that the, the journey is so arduous that Samuel actually ages before his time, mm-hmm. that he becomes an old man due to the burden of it. This is our first mention in the book of Samuel of Bethel. And of course, Bethel is a very significant place. This is where David sees, or not David, sorry, Jacob sees the stairway to heaven. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this is a traditional city of Benjamin. Gilgal also makes its first appearance in the book of Samuel here. And this is the place where they camp after entering into Canaan for the first time. Also a city of Benjamin. And it's where Saul is going to be anointed king. And later he's going to be rejected as king. So Gilgal is going to play a very important role within the book of Samuel. Yeah. We have a definition on Gilgal. You know, I didn't look that up. I didn't even think about that. I'll, I'll, I'll do some yeah. looking. You carry on. I'll okay. try to listen and so, see what I can find. Uh, Rama is Samuel's home uh, after Shiloh was destroyed. And building an altar there, Samuel confirms that there's no other active worship site aside from those that he has anointed, uh, you know, he's anointed or established as a prophet, as a priest, and as a judge. And so every, every, um, Sacrifice that needs to be offered in Israel needs to be happen in one of these four places, and it needs to happen while Samuel is present. Mm-hmm. So this also connects us back to the book of Judges because we're talking about Ramah and Bethel, and these are the towns when we talk about Deborah that she sat under the palm between Ramah and Bethel. She ruled there. So, um, what did you find it? A circle of stones. Circle of stones. Okay. I don't know if it's actually anything uh, Be interesting. that helps our story. I may have to do some research. Uh, contact our archaeologist in residence, okay. as though, uh, <laughs> Miss Becca. But uh, one of the thoughts I had about this is that last verse in 17, uh, just listen and see what you hear. Then he would return to Ramah, to, for his home was there, and there he also judged, and he built there an altar to the Lord. We have... This repetition going on. There? There. We've got it three times. And so this, you know, sets my wheels to turning. And I was remembered of another story where it relied on the repetition of there, specifically Sham, Shem, Shemaim. Uh-huh. 
And so back to Genesis 11, and that's the Tower of Babel. So my thoughts, and again, Emily thoughts. Speculation. Speculation. During Samuel's time, there are four places of worship. This was never God's intent. There was always supposed to be one central location for worship where the nation gathered together to be unified in, mm -hmm. in their worship. Four in Judaism and in, throughout the Bible represents the earth. We have the four corners of the earth. Mm -hmm. We have the four directions, the four seasons. So you, you kind of understand why it fits the idea of the earth. and. Samuel's mission isn't to maintain these four places. These are just kind of a stopgap until we can get to where we're going. Samuel's mission is going to be anoint, to anoint a king that's going to unify the nation. And this unified nation is going to have a place of unified worship. And it reminds us that just like in Babel, when God divided the, the people and scattered them with, by dividing the languages, mm. that's not God's ultimate plan for the earth. Yeah, it happens for a season, but next too, we start to see the, the reversal of that and where God begins to manifest himself by uniting all of the world and reconciling all of the world to himself. Right. So I see in this is a picture of where Samuel, the prophet and the kingmaker, is supposed to take this nation that is divided, and there, there are some major divisions already forming within the nation, to reunite them together and to be reconciled with each other as kind of a picture of what's supposed to happen on a global level under the reign of the one true king, Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so, like I said, that's my, my thoughts on that. I don't have anyone else saying that, but it, it makes sense to me. And you know, I could be wrong, but it, I don't think it's one of those things that if I'm wrong, I'm hurting anybody. Right. So that's how Samuel becomes the judge of Israel. He's, he's been established as a prophet before this, way before this, but now we know that he has been approved as a leader of the nation by God for this time. So Okay. And, and it's kind of interesting because we always hear about, you know, of course, Saul and David, mm -hmm. uh, but we, we don't often think that during the life of Samuel, there was actually four, basically four leaders that were set up and four you know, center, were, yeah, four and, locations. And then, well, no, 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 like leaders. Like we, there was Eli during his life, and there were uh, four leaders that. Okay, I see where. Yeah, and 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 he was actually set up as one of those leaders, and then rejected. Mm -hmm. He, you know, and so I think that's kind of interesting that he he was rejected, and then later Saul was rejected. Mm -hmm. The three rejected leaders up until David. Yeah, before that, we don't actually think about that. Uh, oftentimes that. No, no. You just always think of Saul. And, and it's interesting, too, because Eli's rejected by God. And, and I'm just playing off things. Here am I. Eli's rejected by God. Samuel is rejected, rejected by, by the, the people. people. Mm -hmm. Saul is rejected by God before we get to, to David. So it, it's kind of interesting to see, you know, where the people and God kind of come together and where they part ways mm -hmm. on, on these things. And, and I it's kind of telling about human nature and, and how we elevate certain people based on criteria that, that God really doesn't care about. And yeah. God sees things in people that others miss, which, I mean, of course, that's a major part of the book of Samuel as a mm -hmm. whole. Mm -hmm. So I think that's kind of, yeah, that's interesting. I might spend some time having to, to look into that. So anyway, 
chapter eight. We're going to start there. This is considered to be one of the most significant passages in the historical books. So this is kind of um, the linchpin. The beginning of the monarchy. Yeah, it it really is that transition from, from the judges to the monarchy. And we're also going from those loosely associated tribes to a unified kingdom. So this is, I can't even imagine living in a time period like this where, I mean, everything that had been normal uh, politically, religiously, you know, even among your family members, it's going to change now Mm -hmm. and it's going to be a drastic change. So uh, verses one through three, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel and the name of his second Abijah. And they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Now, there's been a significant length of time that has passed between seven and eight. We don't know how much. It it could have been as little as two years. It could have been as much as 11 years is kind of where most people think it tops out. But long enough for Samuel to get old. Long enough for him to get old. And so 11 is the traditional uh, number there. But, you know, to us, that seems, seems a little short. At least, you know, when I think of someone getting old, it seem, doesn't seem like a very long time. Yeah, well, people didn't live quite as long during this time. Yeah, but it, it also goes back to that teaching with the, with the, the rabbis that this, all of this burden aged him prematurely. And see, I would think all that walking would be great for <laughs> That's what we're told, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> but, keeps, keeps him young and fit, but I guess maybe it doesn't. Well, evidently there's enough strain that he feels like he needs some help because he appoints his sons to be judges. Mm-hmm. Now, right there tells you that Samuel isn't doing everything according to the book because you don't appoint judges. God raises them up. Yeah, which I, which I think is kind of interesting that it would that it would not be okay to do that because i mean wouldn't because in my mind i would just assume that that would be following the example of moses and setting up helpers but those helpers were not by descendants they weren't through the same bloodline right so and they were already leaders chosen i I actually did research on this so it's funny that you bring this up uh because they were leaders that the tribes had already acknowledged within themselves Okay. And right, right, right. So he brought them together and said, okay, now we're going to kind of give you the authority to be able to act not just as an independent individual within the tribe. It's but, how good managers operate. You see the person who's, mm-hmm. who has it together and, and can figure out what's going on, and then you, you know, give you, them a good position. Yeah, you confer the authority for them to be able to, to act yeah. and to act with the backing of, of the nation at this point or the backing of God and Moses. So it's not just an individual out there. But of course, the other thing we're reminded of is Eli and his sons. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we should kind of go, oh, wait a minute, what's happening? Because Eli wasn't a bad man. He was kind of a clueless man, but he wasn't a bad man. His sons were bad. Yes. And, and yeah, it, it, is, it is repeated. And I know, yeah, we don't like to draw that parallel, but it, it's, it's pretty obvious. Yeah, it, it really is. And, and, when, and you also have to figure... Eli was kind of the mentor for Samuel. And, so, and he did have an impact on, on Samuel. And I think we, we can't forget that, that this is still a human relationship, a person. Right. Yeah, he grew up in the same house with him. He, he's, there's going to be some influence. Yeah. 
for better or worse. Now, Samuel's sons don't seem to sink to the same level that Eli's sons did. And we don't know if they were ever operating as priest. Uh, but, you know, priest would be an hered- a hereditary role. Mm-hmm. They could have inherited that from their father, just not to be a judge. Okay. And so um, when Samuel, he, he, he makes the, these trips, um, one of his things that, that we're talking about here is that, uh, sorry, the, the perversion of justice, and, and Samuel is addressing the perversion of justice, and his sons don't. Because as a judge, one of his things to do would be to, to settle disputes and to talk about who's breaking the law, who's keeping the law, and all of these sorts of things. His sons are not following in that, in that and one of the things that's very central to being a prophet is to address the perversion of justice. Mm-hmm. And we find that particularly in Habakkuk uh, 1, 1 through 3. And I think I've got that. Yes, I do have it marked. <laughs> okay, so the oracle of Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and will you not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you not make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? So, you know, the, the perversion of justice is, is near and dear to the prophetic mission. And the fact that his sons are not, um, they're not being upheld as epitome of, of moral goodness and what have you. There, there's something wrong with them. And you kind of have to wonder why. Why weren't they following after their father? And I do, I kind of have to wonder too. Because Samuel's out making this this four city trek, right? And the the text says they do not walk in his ways, and so there's almost like a joke there too, because you know they literally did not walk in his ways, right? And and being in Beersheba, by the way, that that's the southernmost part of Israel, so they aren't even in a place that's convenient for the people to get to. They they're kind of. they aren't making themselves available. So even though Samuel's given them this authority, they aren't doing anything to actually help the nation with the authority that's been given to them. Mm-hmm. So uh, the idea that they could be judges over the nation, it, it's just not, it doesn't fit with anything, whether we're looking back to Eli and his sons as an example of what could be or what the Bible actually describes them to do it. So. Verses four through six, then all the elders, uh, you almost want to cringe anytime the elders of Israel speak, they gather together and they come to Samuel at Ramah and they said, behold, you are old. Your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. We went over last episode about how bad the elders were and how they Mm -hmm. are a part of almost every bad decision that Israel has made. Um, you, You don't. You, you don't want to rely on them. But anyway, a point for us a king. So it's not such a big leap. I mean, the idea of moving from a judge to a king, it seems kind of jarring in the story of Samuel. Right. But we got to remember, Israel has already asked for a king. Mm-hmm. They, they wanted Gideon to be the king. Mm-hmm. And they, they went to him and said, hey, we'll do whatever you want because you've proven to be such a grand warrior. So. The fact that the people don't want Samuel to be their king actually makes sense because he's not a warrior. Samuel never actually gathered an army to fight. Now, God fought on his behalf when Samuel asked for help, 
but he has not been the leader of an army. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's one of the reasons why he is not qualified. Um, Samuel had already broken the norms by appointing his sons as judges what, that you didn't do. Samuel says, I have the power, I have the power and authority to appoint leadership mm-hmm. for Israel. So Samuel kind of opens the door for this to happen. I don't think this is what he meant to happen. Right. I think he thought, well, I can get my sons in here. I can have them continue on and it's going to be a blessing for my family and my family's going to be a blessing for Israel, hopefully. Right. I, right. I don't think he had, you know, nefarious schemes going on, but I do think that he kind of, he overstepped his bounds just a little bit whenever he, he set his sons up as judges. Yeah. And so, and then we have this, this wonderful phrase, a king, um, to judge us like all other nations. We want a king who's going to do the job that you're doing mm-hmm. to be the judge, mm. but we want to be like everyone else. And the thing was, they were already like everyone else. The only difference, I mean, the people, we saw that with the Philistines, where everybody could switch roles, anybody could be anyone else. Yeah. The, only, the only difference was the title. Well, the only difference is the fact that they don't have a king. Mm-hmm. This is the only distinctive marker that they have as a nation left. And so the fact that they even want to get rid of that tells you that they aren't really interested in being God's chosen people other than whenever it suits them. Right. When right. it benefits them, they're happy to be Israelites. The rest of the time, they want Philistine technology. They want the... the... I'm so glad nothing like that <laughs> goes on today. Oh, no. I mean... Yeah, they want to worship the Canaanite gods at their temples with their feasts and their orgies. They they want the Asherahs. They they want the fertility goddesses. They they want to marry God off so he can look more like the Philistine and Canaanite gods. Mm-hmm. And now they're saying we want this last vestige of our distinctive nature to let's let's just do away with that too. Right. And so this becomes so much more of oh, we need a king for our our, our well being. It really becomes a theological statement, and it becomes a statement on the, the condition of these people's hearts. Mm-hmm. And now, and this is kind of where it gets tricky with, with judges, because judges, we know that, you know, the problem there was there was no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Mm-hmm. So trying to reconcile those two things, how do we view that, where here in Samuel, a king is a negative thing, where judges, it was a positive thing. And that that's kind of what a lot of people have pushed up against and said, well, you know, this is a contradiction. Mm-hmm. Well, it's only a contradiction if you don't recognize that the God of Israel was also the king of Israel. And so if you don't recognize God as king, then yeah, you're going to do whatever you want. Right. And that's still today. If, if you think God isn't your king or you don't think of him as king, then why in the world do you have to do anything he tells you to do? Mm. And so that's, that's where we as Christians can look at this and say, how do, you know, what do we take away from this? Well, we need to recognize God as our king and not look for something else to rule over us because we will serve something. Mm-hmm. The question is, are we going to be honest about it? Right. So, but I'm trying to think, is there anything else we want to go into? Well, <laughs> we, I think we're, we're decent on time. We're a little under, but I think we'll be fine. Well. Well, one of the things was we, we get to go forward. Uh, we're going to find out that when God gives them exactly what they want, the people are going to realize it's not what they want. 
and oh, yeah. it's yeah and and i ha- i have a theory on that there's a, <laughs> a hypothesis i want to throw out we're we're going to look at some other things and parallels and the way that god operates Oh, yeah. And well, and it gets really fascinating when you read the description of Saul and how God explains, this is exactly what you ask for. Mm -hmm. And we miss it because we haven't been reading the story in a chronological order. We just jump in and pull out, you know, a couple Mm -hmm. of verses that work well for an illustration. When if you're going to get the depth from it, you got to start at Genesis 1 and you got to work your way through. Mm -hmm. So I I know we didn't do that, but, you know, Judges gives you a pretty good foundation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I think that would have been quite the interesting task, starting in Genesis 1 and going all the way through. But <laughs> we, we covered quite a bit of ground uh, and a lot of ground that doesn't get covered very often. So I'm, I'm excited to see what else we've got going on. But that, that is a good spot to, to break. And uh, we'll take a short break and be back here recording in uh, a few minutes. Uh, but everyone out there, we'll see you next week. And hope you have a good one. If you like what you heard, be sure to share and like us on facebook Um, be sure to be part of the conversation at raven creek sc on social media ravencreeksc.com or uh, hit us up on patreon if you want to buy us some coffee or new microphones (laughs) or uh new microphones please (laughs) anything like that um larger hard drive for my laptop or something like that anyway so i appreciate everyone being part of this and uh Have a good week. We'll see you next time. (laughs) Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.